Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Project MedTech. I'm your host, Dwayne Mancini. As always, if you need anything from the podcast or would like to suggest a future guest, please email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. And you can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. This is another episode of MedTech Money powered by Project MedTech. This is a special series by Project MedTech where we have partnered with Mr. MedTech himself, Giovanni Loricella, in a series of podcast episodes focusing on money in the MedTech space. Giovanni's guest today is Howard Edelman from Tessa Medical and Life Science Angels. In this episode, Howard and Giovanni discuss being a part of Life Science Angels, what his team is working on at Tessa Medical, the mechanics of how angels invest, the different strategies they employ, safes versus notes, price rounds, West Coast versus East Coast versus Midwest Angels, and more. So without further ado, Giovanni's discussion with Howard Edelman. Thank you very much for joining us here today. This is MedTech Money podcast series powered by Project MedTech and sponsored by Lifeblood Capital. And the reason why we're here is I've talked to thousands of MedTech entrepreneurs and investors around the world. And what I've discovered is that there's no silver bullet or specific formula about how to raise or invest capital in MedTech. So my goal here was that I would like to extract insights and anecdotal stories from entrepreneurs, investment bankers, accelerators, investors like yourself, to help those who we can benefit from this information and also for generations of entrepreneurs and investors to come. So the audience likely listening into this is a mixture of experts and novices. And I wanted to extract your stories, your insights, your advice to share with what I imagine is that first time founder or CEO and has no idea or clue what lies ahead of them in terms of their fundraising journey. So I thought the best place to start is learning from experienced professionals like yourself. So while I know that you're an entrepreneur within your career and currently an entrepreneur, you're also an angel investor and also affiliated with a very well-known angel group here in the US called the Life Science Angels. We'll get into all of those backgrounds. And the purpose of you and I being here today is I wanted to focus on demystifying what an angel group is, how they think, how they invest, what they invest in, so that all those entrepreneurs out there who are pursuing raising capital from angel groups know how to more effectively either reach out or how to pitch or what to come prepared with. So that's the, the purpose of this. Before we get into all of that, I have three open-ended questions that I wanted to share with you to get some engagement and have the audience listen in. Um, the first one is, do you believe fundamentally that people and money are the lifeblood of a med tech startup? Why or why not? And am I missing anything important? Well, uh, so good question. Um, you know, obviously, you know, like uh, any organization, it, it's composed of people. And uh, from an investor standpoint, uh, you know, you invest in people. Um, you know, the the uh, the investors want to be able to to meet the you know the the CEO and the management team. And get to know them, and really, that's where where uh, the investment um, primarily stems from. And we probably all heard this a number of times that 
and a, uh, a, a, an A-level team with a C idea or C-level idea gets funded all the time over an A-level idea with a C-level team. So, so investors primarily are, you know, are investing in people. And, um, you know, the experience level, the, the, the motivation, the focus, uh, you know, all those things, you know, feed into it, uh, obviously. And of course, you know, you need capital. Um, I mean, it, it's just a fundamental thing. If the capital isn't there, uh, you know, it, it's hard to do a lot. I mean, obviously a lot of entrepreneurs can do a lot with very little. Um, I think investors, uh, you know, like to see that, that people are, are in general being uh, smart with their money. But it doesn't have to be, at least in my mind, overly so, um, you know, where they're just frugal beyond belief. I, you know, I used to, uh, and I still run uh, a number of companies, but when I started, I used to refer to myself, and I, you know, I heard this from, from someone else, and most CEOs, their stories are from other people that they've learned from previous CEOs that they've worked for and worked with and so on, and then they, they tend to modify them and then come up with their own stories. But I used to call myself, when I referred myself to the CEO, I'd say I was the chief executive officer. And so, you know, to a point, you know, that makes sense. But, you know, in healthcare, uh, you know, it, it takes a certain amount of capital to get things done. These are not inexpensive projects. The, these are really, for the most part, unless perhaps you're talking about certain things in digital health, you know, where it's a bunch of people who are, you know, sleeping on futons and eating top ramen and, and whipping up code over a weekend, you know, and, and going from there. These are things that um, necessarily are going to take some capital, whether it's clinical studies, uh, you know, outside services and, uh, you know, regulatory assessments and on and on and on. Uh, you know, there, of course, there's always ways to shop it and get the best price, but, you, you know, you tend to get uh, what you pay for. Second question, if you knew what you know now about being both a medtech entrepreneur as well as an investor, would you do it all over again? Why or why not? Or what would you do differently? Well, uh, yeah. And look, I, I'm still on both sides of the table. And, uh, you know, th this is an area that... Um, uh, you know, I, I, a part of the market that I like a lot um, because, you know, of the innovation and the ability to move quicker and so forth. And that's not to say, uh, you know, look, I work with a lot of big brands uh, on a consulting or advisory basis and so forth. And so, you know, there's certain things they can do that that small companies just just can't do or have a lot of struggles doing. Um, you know, to get effective studies done or to turn on the dime and bring resources to bear to, to get something done, uh, you know, that, that needs to be done a certain way. But, you know, it, it's always fun to be able to have, um, you know, see an opportunity and to, to be able to lay the path out, you know, to get there and execute it and have a little bit more sense of control over it. So that's always fun. And, and you think the idea of being able to build that kind of value and realize a return for that you know, um, a little more directly than, than working at a bigger brand. You know, it, you know, the people who do this obviously tend to bet on themselves and have confidence in themselves. And it, it often does tend to be in general across the board, this is a gross generalization, but a younger person um, in the sense of, you know, being motivated and fully committing to things and jumping in. Whereas uh, uh, as you get uh, a little bit further in your career, there's more personal commitments you may have to meet. So. Uh, you know, the risks uh, have to be considered more for that. But at any rate, 
um, I tend to really enjoy and live in, in the early stage um, part of the market um, because of the value that can be built and uh, the abil ability to move quickly and um, you know attract resources and get them excited uh, and just go. So uh, that's what I tend to enjoy. And lastly, once again, knowing that you're on both sides of the pond of being an entrepreneur as well as a, an angel group, and, and we can toggle on both, I want to focus a little bit more on the angel group piece. Um, you're part of the Life Science Angels, a very well-known mm -hmm. group within the United States. If you can, why the Life Science Angels? Meaning, what's what's in the name of the company? Is it as straightforward as it sounds? Life Science Angels, meaning investing in life science, or is there a med tech and digital spin to that as well? What's in the name behind Life Science Angels? Yeah, you know, and, and when I was looking for an angel group, that this I, I just wanted to focus on healthcare. You know, I think I uh, that's the 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 market I I live in, and I I think I tend to know more about that than other things. And most of the investors that join the group, there's about 140 or 50 members or so across the country, um, <clears throat> that's their focus. And obviously we have a lot of members who are different groups, but the ones that join, they're looking for a healthcare focus. Um, and the way the, the group is, is organized in terms of screening deals is we have two screening committees. One focuses on digital health and, and medical device. And I, I had chair committee for about three years and we rotate through um, and the other committee we have is our, our bio group, which is um, a catch-all for pharma uh, and genomics, uh, microbiology, uh, things like that, uh, lab equipment, perhaps, you know, point of care diagnostics and so forth. Sometimes it's a little unclear, um, you know, where, you know, which group screens what type of deal, if it's a combination device, for example, but that's how it aligns. Um, so, yeah, we, we tend to just focus on healthcare. Um, we have a lot of depth. Uh, across all areas, really. Um, most of our folks have been uh, successful entrepreneurs. A lot of them are, are healthcare providers and, and have that background, but we have a um, pretty broad reach across uh, you know, the whole industry um, in terms of resources we need to tap to look at deals. Um, uh, folks with, with all sorts of levels of experiences, any given sector of, of healthcare. And now that we have a little bit more background, the man behind the voice who are those listening in right now who is howard edelman where do you come from how'd you build your career and then where are you today yeah no i appreciate that so uh so i have a, a biomedical engineering background at boston university and um uh, really started uh, my career and spent the first half of it uh managing you know in, in managerial executive roles uh, managing r d and operational groups at, at larger companies like j and j and Zeiss, uh, Cooper Vision, Biorad Labs, and then really went from there over the last 20 plus years or so more into early stage uh, projects. Um, started uh, um, uh, two different orthopedic device companies, one that I uh, was first was mine that I, I ran and uh, built and ran for 10 years. And really that, that experience was understanding really concept, you know, back in the envelope around the kitchen table and, and growing a company to profitability and leading in the market sector. So I really got to learn uh, all the way through. And a lot of folks um, often don't get that opportunity because um, uh, first of all, there's, you know, across uh, startups, there's a lot of attrition. Secondly, in healthcare, a lot of times the the exit is, is prior to commercialization uh, depending. So a lot of times folks just don't really get that chance to, to understand uh, the sales cycle. From there, um, when we were in the midst of selling the company, I was recruited 
to uh, start a device division for private equity roll-up. And uh, I knew the chairman uh, of that company quite well as Iconic and Orthopedics, and they were the ones that were leading the, um, the acquisition of, of my previous company, Vitalware. Um, uh, and so I went in there and, and I started the third division we had, got the board to approve the budget and then uh, ran and built that out. And um, over, um, uh, once we launched uh, about 18 months in, we got it to a $10 million run rate for that division. And then uh, we sold the overall organization. Following that, and in about that uh, was about 2014, I started doing a lot more advisory and consulting, uh, uh, advisory boards, uh, boards of directors, and so forth, fractional CEO at any given time for a couple of projects. I joined Life Science Angels and then also uh, have an EIR role at UCSF here locally in the Venture Innovations Group. So um, a lot of early stage things. Um, uh, yeah, so that that's, that's my background. And then you've given some background on life science angels, but if we can start talking holistically about them, you mentioned how many people you said nationwide. So we get a little bit more of a, a flair to that, but generally it's a West coast slash Bay area organization. What do you yeah. guys, what do you guys typically invest in size of ticket? Do you guys, are you, are you all on yeah. one LLC? That's uh, one line on the cap table. Mm -hmm. How does it all work as a, as a whole? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, <clears throat> we, we tend to invest in the seed or a, um, companies with a pre-money or cap in the three to 8 million range is, is quite typical. If we go valuations or above that, we, we often just don't come in and that, that sort of feeds into a general philosophy and calculation from the group of hoping to, you know, to get a, a 10 times return on investment, if the valuations are, are higher, it's just it's just not where we play. That's not to say other groups don't do, obviously other rounds or look for other profiles. Um, uh, that's just what we do. So the angels tend to be much more seed. Uh, folks really need to come to us with uh, um, something built, concept with data that's generated. We, re we don't invest in, I have an idea. Um, we really need to see some evidence uh, of um, something working um, and that it could have a hope of being effective in, in, in the, uh, the problem they're trying to solve in the market they're going after. Uh, like VCs, you know, we tend to look at billion dollar market opportunities, although they can be less as long as we think that it's a good opportunity and there's a reasonable exit point. Um, we tend to um, invest uh, our initial bite sizes two to 500K. You have to get over 200K for us to be, uh, or for the company to be a so-called life science angels company, meaning um, you know, uh, as you mentioned, you know, when we invest, um, everyone invests individually, but we get over the threshold, then we, we commit and everybody rolls up into an LLC uh, that shows up as one line on the cap table. We work uh, quite a bit and have uh, at a board level of folks that work to help syndicate. I help to help syndicate deals, meaning, uh, you know, we'll take it to other groups that we know and, and we'll network with um, uh, a number of other angel groups around the country to share deals and help advocate for the deals. And we, we do that really for selfish reasons. You know, we're trying to get the entrepreneurs what they need. So it protects our investment and, and you know, moves the project along the way it needs to be moved along. We're quite good at, at doing um, follow-on rounds. I'd say, you know, at least 75% of the companies will come in and give us regular updates and we often will reinvest when they do that. We march to a, a dinner schedule. So we have six a year, you know, every other month. And in the intervening process, we'll physically, well, of course there's been COVID, but normally 
will physically meet every other week. So by definition, we meet four times between the dinners um, and uh, we'll, we'll screen companies at that time. Uh, on the alternate weeks, uh, we have uh, an internal process to review companies and that's with our fellows. And the fellows, it's a program we've had where there's about eight to 12 or so rotating folks. They have a stints of typically six to 12 months and um, they're, they're practicing clinicians, residents, interns, uh, postdocs, PhD candidates, and so forth. Uh, a, a lot of them, most of them all healthcare backgrounds. And they really are looking to build their network. They may have a project or company they're working on, but they know at some point they want to understand how angel investing works and they want to have a network to be able to go to. A lot of them come from Stanford Hospital, Stanford uh, in general, or, or Biodesign, UCSF. Cal and so forth, but um, that's how we get them. And they do a lot of initial diligence for us uh, gratis um, uh, in exchange for this. Uh, and we rely on them a lot, they're great. So they'll do the initial screening and then we'll meet. Um, so we'll bring two companies um, to, each committee brings two for each meeting. And so by definition, there's probably eight to 10, we, we will winnow down to screen. Of course, the, uh, over the course of the year, there's probably about 500 or so companies that apply. Um, but we went out down and each committee will pick one for the dinner and then they'll present at the dinner and you get the full membership and then the push goes on to raise. So the whole process, if you come in in the beginning of the funnel, typically in that two month period and then pitch at the dinner, the hope is you can close within 30 days after that. So hopefully it's a 90 day process. Often it's not, it's longer. Um, and the key thing is, is really to get momentum in there. The best way to do it is to find a member somehow who's an advocate to help bring you in and advocate for you. If they've invested before, that makes a huge difference for us. The companies that pitch that have great ideas. Um, one of our problems is that the screening committee members, it's a limited number, it's probably about 30 of us who come regularly and will tend to put up their hands to lead deals. And it's hard for people to lead multiple deals throughout the year. It takes a lot of effort, a lot of work. Remember, this is all a volunteer organization. So nobody, we're just looking for the opportunity to invest. We're not looking for anything else other than that. So it, it takes a lot of work and effort. And, you know, to be frank about it, I think members can be burnt out if they do more than lead a couple of deals a year. It's a lot. So that's one of our issues. If you can get a member excited on board who's already invested and brings it in saying, hey, I like, I like this company. There's, this is why. And I've already invested and I'll lead it. I'm an advocate or I'll really help. That makes a very big difference for us. So. When a group comes in, you know, it's hard for them to find members and get them to invest. But if you're able to do that, the odds of you getting to the dinner and getting the capital need are much, much higher. So that's a recommendation I would make. Um, yeah. So anyway, that, that's the general way we work. Well, I have numerous questions that came from that. <laughs> one of them is you mentioned that you do roll up as one line on the cap table because you invested in yeah. as an LLC. Mm -hmm. On this series, we've talked to a couple other angels and, and some of them are vehemently against doing that. They, they actually are numerous individuals on a cap table, right? So now mm -hmm. we're getting to understand that there's various styles of angel groups and affiliations. To yeah. your understanding, what's the pros, cons, benefits, action items, whether it's for the entrepreneur receiving the money or the angel group itself? Why do some invest as individuals, multiple people on a cap mm -hmm. table, yeah. and one actually roll up together as one unified force and, and say, we're gonna invest in this company and, and one line on the cap table? Well, I, I think the, um, 
you know, the, the, the hope is if we roll it up and then some, often, depending upon how much we put in, uh, we may say we feel like we're at a certain point where we'd like a board seat, right? So uh, th that's the reason for that is to sort of uh, collectivize that and then advocate for board seat and then have more, more say at the table. Uh, individuals, I think they they feel like um, you know they may have more transparency if if they're have an individual say. On the company side, it, it's really a lot easier to deal with one entity instead of multiple, and uh, it takes a bit to get to a threshold where you're going to force uh, you know something from a governance standpoint because you have too many investors. Um, but uh, uh, you know, I, I think there's a really advantages for the company. In addition, you know, if you're going to, a lot of times you're going to need larger rounds here. So you're going to be talking to venture and the venture guys will like to see a cleaner cap table. If they have to deal with a lot of individuals, they're not, you know, it's, it's not something that they particularly get excited about. So we think it helps set the stage for subsequent rounds where it makes it a lot cleaner. The communication is cleaner. And that's not to say if we say, if we say, Hey, look, we're, we're going to represent the seed or the A, um, you know, but things change on the next rounds or whatever, and there has to be a shuffling of the board. I mean, we're, we're obviously, we can, we can talk about that. We're not going to get in the way of things. Um, but we think we can bring a lot to the table and we usually do. So. And also it's not only cleaner for a cap table, but it's also a little bit easier for the entrepreneur or the, the CEO or executive leading the organization when it comes to updates, right? I mean, as opposed to having yeah. approvals or, permission, if you will, from the investors on having multiple right. people, it's that one LLC or that one line on the cap table that says yay or nay. Right, right. Yeah. And, and I think it also gives the individuals some flexibility if they're saying, hey, I, um, I, I, I want to invest, but I don't want the entrepreneur or the company pestering me. This is a one-time thing for me. Uh, you know, that anyway, there's advantages both ways, depending upon what your preference is. But I think this works for us. The other thing too, is some groups will have a sidecar fund or, or a fund that the members will invest in uh, and then they, they invest in a fund and the fund can invest and they can invest individually. And there's advantages to that. We like that and we've been talking about it for some time. We don't do that at LSA. Um, I, I think it'd be a good thing if we did do that because it would help diversify people's investments and they can get into a lot more deals. But typically you'll see with some of the other groups like Tech Coast Angels and so forth, they have a sidecar and they might say the fund's going to put in X number of dollars and the individuals put in X number of dollars. So it's good for the company that comes in because they have different buckets they can pull from and hopefully get more capital. And that's something LSA again has talked about and, and um, I think I would like us to pursue it, but we just haven't done that yet. And I'm asking this for me, hopefully it benefits the listeners, but you mentioned that when you invest, you also can typically follow up and do additional rounds as well. So yeah. when you think about angel groups, typically, at least in my mind, they're affiliated with seed rounds. I actually was doing a podcast earlier this week with an entrepreneur who recently closed on her series A round, and she had both angel groups as well as mm -hmm. VCs involved in that A round. So mm -hmm. I don't want to say it's necessarily a new concept. It's, it's not, but talk about that with the, the stereotypical or the tr traditional sense of angel groups being involved in that seed round of funding where that typical series is affiliated with traditional VC money. And would you consider yourself a quote unquote late stage, early stage investor if you're having to have companies having a proof of concept or at least something that quote unquote works and then still being able to reserve funds to get involved in those later stage funding rounds? 
Yeah, so I would say it's a later stage seed, if you will, or A. Uh, we don't reserve funds per se. People just come back in and give us an update, and they usually do that because they're looking for more capital. They may make room or they may say, hey, is it courtesy to you um, to help uh, you know, um, prevent some dilution on your side? We're, we're allowing a chunk of this or a portion of the A or B uh, open if you want it. Um, as sometimes the venture guys just don't want that. Uh, they, they'll just want to take the round. It just depends upon the deal and what's negotiated. Um, uh, yeah, but you know, the, the thing too is that most companies that come into us, as I said, um, they may have had a pre-seed um, and they usually have had some capital, friends and family or something, you know, that's come in a lot of times, uh, non-dilutive capital through grants and you know, research and so forth that's come in and they've been able to, to do those things. And that's a proof of principle too, to show that the, you know, the team has enough savvy and uh, wherewithal and uh, you know, the government has thought enough of it that you know, to, to give them grant money to push things forward. Um, so you know, we, we just like to see that. And I, look, I know a, a lot of entrepreneurs go, how am I gonna get money? I gotta do this, is a great idea. And, you know, uh, and, and how come you guys can't do it? It's just what the profile is. They just have to under, understand, you know, that's it. Um, and, and you have to figure out how to get to each stage, you know, along the way. <clears throat> but, you know, it's also a momentum game. You know, there's that, that little bit of a crude expression, the dog and the fire hydrant. You know, as soon as you get one in the neighborhood, you know, then, then the others will come because they're looking for validation, you know, somehow, somewhere from someone, you know, and that feeds on itself. You have to be careful too, because sometimes, you know, that, that one dog can soil the whole thing for everybody. And, you know, because everybody talks and they know each other and they say, why didn't they, hey, look, uh, investors are looking for, always looking for reasons to say no. You know, I don't like the color of the guy's socks. In fact, that, that was a famous one from Gordon Bell in the nineties. He wrote his book about early stage investing. And, and uh, I was, I had a meeting with him on one of my early projects, early in my salad days, early in my career. And I uh, read his book and, and uh, there was a project someone showed him and he liked it a lot, but he got to meet the CEO and, and he, he didn't invest. And, and his colleague asked him, why not? I thought you really liked it. And he goes, I just, I, the guy wore white socks. I just, it turned me off somehow. Crazy, crazy, crazy. But uh, just to illustrate a point, you know, that people are looking for reasons to say no. So, so when you come in, you know, you're looking to, and most people now are so well trained up on, you know, what's expected of them through, uh, you know, either at their, you know, the universities uh, train people, i all sorts of programs on how to, you know, put together decks, what, what the boxes are to check, what the elements are for a pitch, and, you know, um, putting the things together the right way. Uh, you know, so, um, and, and, and it's, it's surprising to find that if people don't have them, what we, what we rarely see these days are people having fully written business plans or even well thought out pro formas. Um, and uh, at least I still start with the pro forma. That's how I start projects is laying out the story that way. And we like to see that. We like to see that people, look, this is a financial investment. We like to see that people are good at handling money. And if there's math errors or if the formatting is not right or the assumptions are way off, uh, you know, that that's often an indicator that, um, you know, they may not be able, they don't have the experience of handling money the right way or treating it the right way and so on. So we look at that a lot. We like to look at the financials quite a bit. There's exceptions to all rules and even the sock 
story that you just <laughs> yeah. Sorry about that one. No, yeah. no, I, lo I love that. And, and to the listeners out there, I'm sure there's a lot of salivation going on from early stage entrepreneurs wanting to understand how they can appropriately raise capital and reach out to angel groups, et cetera. So you mentioned earlier the, the typical size of check that the mm -hmm. life science angels generally invest in, or for that matter, the generalities of an angel group. In your experience, any anomaly or exceptional stories with regards to how angel groups can invest? I mean, typically, like you mentioned, valuations of three to 8 million, typical check sizes, 200, 250,000, et cetera. I mean, is there ever a story or are there examples or exceptions where angels are taking on a full million dollar round or is there five? Oh, yeah, it happens all check? the time. Happens all, we just exceeded our, our, uh, our max uh, investment on a deal recently and we put in one and a half million. But that's, again, that's, gives you a sense of the scale. Uh, there's other groups who can do more. Um, it just depends upon, the, the thing that really got that deal to move was it had great advocacy internal to us and, and the, the group that, the individuals who, who sort of led that internally did a lot on diligence. They twist a lot of arms, they networked a lot internally. And over time, you know, the, the, all these things have an arc, right? The members, I, I can't tell you if there's an average tenure for members, you know, let's say 10 years. And when people join, they often get advice um, of don't write big checks, you know, right away, spread your investment out, you know, or deals you like, don't do the first ones, you know, just wait to get a sense, right? Like any invest, investing in the public markets, whatever, there's a, there, there's experience, you know, and people like to try to put some parameters around it. And we train new members. We, we tell them all these things. And like, a, there's, there's always an interest to sort of, hey, I, you see a shiny object, you want to jump right in. Uh, and that's okay. But we encourage them to get involved in diligence, learn, you know, uh, get to meet the other members, learn how they work, how they think. And, you know, that's the fun of it. Um, but, um, you know, you, you really have to get folks who are committed and enthusiastic. And uh, like anything in life, a lot of people get distracted. As I said, this is a volunteer organization. There's some people who do it full time. That's all they do is angel investing. And I know a number of those folks and they make many, many investments a year. Um, and then there's others who just dabble a little bit and go, you know, my life is moving on for me. I'm going to move on to the next thing. So, but you have to have, you know, find folks who, who can advocate well for you, network well, and so on. And, you know, the deals that I often get involved with, especially because I had the role of the chair of the, you know, the, uh, the device digital health committee is if I make some investments, I'm usually the first check in and then I advocate for it within our group. And then if we can get it over the line and invest, then I'll help them, the company take it to other groups. And usually those groups will then say, Hey, can you share diligence with us? And we'll do that. There's other groups we have written agreements with um, uh, to do that. And then I can get on a call with their committee for an hour and talk it through. And often it short circuits the whole process for them. They'll come in right away. And there's been a number of investments that I've made where we've been able to do that and the companies get to their you know, initial goals quite quickly. So that's really, I think, the most effective way. So you mentioned anomalies. Just to make that super clear again. So all these entrepreneurs who are listening in right now, you're saying angel groups could take on those $10,000, $20,000 checks, super, super small, maybe $100,000 rounds, $250,000 rounds. But there are groups out there that are batting for one, two million, one and a half million. So it's possible. It's, out there. it's certainly possible. Yeah. I mean, I think um, it's hard to say, but a threshold, say a seed or an A, people are looking for 
750 to two and a half million to me that's angel yeah deal three million you're going above that three five ten i mean that's that's venture and if you're saying hey we're looking to raise 10 and you're pitching angels they're they're thinking this is not a good fit for us because we're you're not going to get what you need from us and that puts our money at risk you know yeah. Yeah. give a color to this what is the typical amount of investments that life science angels would make in a year how many companies actually receive money from lsi or LSI? <coughs> yeah excuse me so by uh when i told you earlier about the dinner schedule six dinners a year two companies each so there's some companies who who may not get anything uh they just uh doesn't happen at the dinner it's it's a big donut and that happens so i'd say you know a good of, of the 12 companies that pitch probably 10 will, will have uh, invested in you also mentioned, and you and I have talked about this numerous times, about getting a, a warm introduction or an introduction into mm -hmm. the angel groups themselves, or specifically the angels within LSA. Um, how important is it for you, the concept of a warm intro? I mean, what does that really mean when it comes to those entrepreneurs out there right now listening in on building their network? If they're the first, if they're the engineer who came up with a great idea and they've never raised capital before and they're not really innately a networker, um, or it's the VP of sales who decided to take over a company and wants to raise money for the first time, all those people who've never done it before. Um, how important is a warm introduction? How do they go out and build those? What's that networking process like? Well, look, I, I, I would say, um, you know, this is true across life. You know, I, I mean, you're moving to a new town and you're looking for a dentist and you talk to a friend and who's your dentist? Um, you know, and it's how many of us meet uh, significant others and spouses and so on. I mean, it's just, um, you know, people that are warmly introduced to each other that that says there's a level of, of uh, you would think a level of vetting. Um, so that helps a lot. Uh, it, it, it just does. So that's why during COVID, it's a little more challenging to do it. Now for technical people, and I, I count myself as one of them being trained that way uh, and, until I made the decision to really go more into you know, entrepreneurship, uh, you just don't think that way. You don't, you're not trained. You're in, usually inside four walls all day, banging away on something with a small group of people. And uh, you, you don't have a network. You know, it just is not out there. And many folks don't even think to, uh, you know, uh, cultivate that network from from the college days or other organizations or they just they just don't think that way. Once you're sort of in it, it's funny uh, that you start, you know, when you're raising capital, you start seeing almost every person you meet is I wonder if they could be an investor, you know the guy who just delivered my mail. I wonder if he invests in early stage companies. So it's funny that, you know, it, it kind of goes that way, but it's work, you know, it's it's running to the gunfire for a lot of, of, uh, of us because we're not used to doing that, but you have to learn that skill and you have to take that on and you have to actively, you know, work at that. And going to your point about maybe you're the first check in and you have to syndicate mm -hmm. it to either other angel groups or even mm -hmm. other members within the LSA group. Mm -hmm. um, is money as personal and based on trust, like you mentioned with this warm introduction, is it something like if you've known someone all your life, your best friend since a kid, right? And, and now you're in your mm -hmm. 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, whatever it may be. And that same best friend of yours comes to you and says, I just invested in this digital coin. I just invested in the stock. I just invested in this company, whatever it may be. Um, 
and because it's your best friend or one of your best friends telling you that you just objectively or blindly throw your money in there because why wouldn't that trust be there if that person's telling you that does that kind of how it works in an angel group where maybe there's a few people or one person who really goes through the diligence process and then if they come to some sort of conclusion that it's investable um, especially if they're part of an angel group there's some people who just do very little work or maybe nothing and say here's 10 grand here's 50 grand is that how it works yeah i, I look it's all those ways right there, there's obviously people who uh, in any given group that uh, people respect and they think if, if Mary says so, if Joe says so, I trust them, uh, I'm gonna invest alongside them. Um, and so, that, yeah, that, that happens with a lot of things. You know, people will, will follow others, um, you know, based on that, it happens all the time. And I find it unique, I've talked to other angel groups where there is this, whether it's two or three month cycle, where it's shows or they get on stage or there's pitches, right? But this is the first time I'm hearing a, a dinner um, is it, mm. is it really it's the same? Dinner? Yeah, no, it is. It, it, it happens locally, uh, in, in where we are in Palo Alto area. Um, you know, there's one of the local, uh, country clubs, you know, hosts us, they have for years. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's an open bar and that's always good because, uh, uh, and there's no checks written at the time, but you know, when you get people a little softened up, it's, it's helpful, yeah. you know, when they've had a couple drinks to listen to a story and, and a little more animated uh but that's part of it angel groups are very social you know um and i think for a lot of people uh across our culture you know COVID has been hard zoom has been hard uh and and, and i count myself as as one of those you know my enthusiasm for listening to a zoom pitch of a company at six o'clock in the evening after a day of talking to people you know it's just it's not nearly what it would be if we said hey we're meeting we're going to have and you know normally have some have some dinner and meet people and meet my colleagues and the banter back and forth you know uh with the company and seeing what our colleagues know about a ministry and so forth it's a lot more fun you just don't get that from zoom so yeah um and on the timing of that you mentioned it's every two months but what happens if if right. there's yeah. Say it again? No, well, to, not to interrupt you, but what we call an off-cycle deal, right? So let's suppose we've got two great deals and we got to vote on one from each committee. That happens all the time. And we, we then talk about, can we invest in something on what's called an off-cycle, which means, you know, it's up to who's leading the deal to go and twist arms and say, hey, do you want to jump in on this one too? I have to tell you, we've talked about it a lot, but it just usually doesn't happen. You know, people will then invest individually and uh, they, they just don't. I think the, the thing that people, for the most part, try to do is, um, in our group, they're like, I'll go with the herd because there's safety numbers. I'll wait for the dinner. I'll listen to that company that has gone through this whole process. And if uh, it, it, a lot of people say, well, if, if uh, certain folks are investing, I'll, in votes. I'll invest in it. Or if we get to a certain threshold, I'll invest. I'll jump in with that. Or I'll just wait for that. That's my time commitment to, to this group. Other people will say, you know, I'll, uh, I'll invest individually in this one. I like it. I've gotten to know them and I've taken the time to do that. So typically the off cycle deals just don't, don't work that much, you know, in our group. And for, to paint that with an example. So I've, I've interviewed and talked with several entrepreneurs who have this idea of creating FOMO, fear of missing out of putting a start date and an end date to their capital race. 
and mm -hmm. sometimes they have even minimum check sizes um, of which they'll accept. And going back to our warm intro, let's just say X, Y, and Z CEO and founder of a company is out there raising an angel round right now, and they have their own timeline where they're going to close the, the round at whatever date. And it just happens to be not lining up magically with your two month cycle or your dinner. Mm -hmm. um, they're a great company and mm -hmm. they're hard on their line and you're hard on your right. dinner. Um, yeah. How does that work? Is it just- Yeah, that happens, that happens too. Often, you know, we, we, we usually don't, uh, it usually does not work out where we say, boy, we got to get in on this one. We're going to miss it. We, we just, it, it's, it's rare that we uh, will move that way. We, we tend to just work to our own timeframe. Um, and, and the so-called like the rolling close um, usually has not worked for us either. We usually say you're looking to raise a certain amount. Um, we're we're going to put it in escrow until you get there. That happens too. And that's frustrating for entrepreneurs, but at least they can say, look, LSA is put in 500. It's an escrow. Um, so that's there. Okay. And that gives people comfort. But but we'll do that because we want to make sure you get what you need to hit the next next milestone. I want to switch gears on this understanding of the different styles or mechanisms of financing early stage companies, especially with angels, safes, convertible notes, straight equity. Mm -hmm. um, I've learned through some more conversations and only as of recently in the past few months, I've heard this cultural nuance of safes are more West Coast, convertible notes are more East Coast. And I, it actually started because that was a secondary response where um, I, I heard that some angel groups would only do safes and others wouldn't do convertible notes and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. what's your perspective on that? Is there cultural nuances mm -hmm. to that? Why do some do safes? Why do some do notes or both or none? Yeah, I think there's a lot of preferences for that. I think you see the safes really came out of Y Combinator. And, um, you know, the, the idea there was to, to help move things along very quickly uh, and, and not get bogged down in, uh, uh, you know, haggling over valuations and all that stuff. And so our group in general has a very uh, unfavorable view towards safes. We just don't do them. We think that they're very one-sided towards the entrepreneur and that's good for the entrepreneur, but it typically is not good for the investor. We'd rather you just take the time to define, you know, what the terms are. We want to know what we're getting, not something at a future date. Uh, so we'll do notes and we'll do price rounds. We prefer price rounds. Uh, so it's a cleaner cap table or balance sheet rather later. And, uh, and we know what the valuation is because at some point you're going to need to clear that up. So we tend to prefer price rounds, although we'll do notes and uh, we'll want to know what the cap is on a note if you're going to do that. But again, um, we just have a very unfavorable view towards safes, and I don't think we've ever invested in those. And, and sometimes entrepreneurs will look at us, they usually come out of the digital health side. They're just not, we don't see them um, on, on device or drug or anything like that. And the entrepreneurs will look at us kind of squirrely like, why not? You know, and we go, because it's just not to, in our favor. What you, it was, we, we consider them lazy. And, um, and uh, a little bit, uh, honestly, um, arrogant. So we just don't, we just don't do them. Well, I'm, I'm glad you demystified that because there's been a few, <laughs> there's been a few uh, conversations I've had that, and to your point of it coming out of Y Combinator, there's been this West Coast leaning on the safes where 
and that's yeah. what I've been told, right? So just a conversation, but I've always known that there's been some that do them, some that don't, but it's good to know that there's a Bay Area angel group who is vehemently, let's call it against safes, yeah. um, but will do price rounds and, and convertible notes. So once again, if we're talking fundamentals for those listening here, um, price rounds, meaning straight equity, where they know mm. what the valuation is or mm-hmm. what they're asking for, um, then if you could differentiate, yes, we know now that safes are more one-sided towards the entrepreneur. You have a heavy preference on the other side of price rounds and equity, straight mm-hmm. equity, understood equity. Um, why then be a little bit open to convertible notes? What's that difference? Well, again, I think that the note is is meant for expediency. Um, uh, and, and so we, we understand that. Um, but you know then, then you know there, there's terms in there that are usually you know fairly you know in general uh, ha- has favorable preferences to an investor. So again, I, I think you know having myself raised on on um, all of these except safes, I never did safes. You know I think the preference is really to do equity. Uh, it, the, the notes are just not hanging over your head. There's no deadline at some point we got to convert. And frankly, I think most people. Um, you know, they're, they're not going to force a conversion uh, of a note because then they're going to say, what am I going to do with these assets? You know, if the company can't make good in them and you can say, well, they're great assets. It's like, yeah, but then you have to spend your time trying to figure out how to, how to liquidate those assets. And there's just usually no market for early stage assets, you know? Um, so to a certain extent, it, it, I think it, it just doesn't, it doesn't matter that much. It's going to get converted at some point anyway. And if you're hitting a deadline, you usually have to go back to investors to ask more time on notes. But um, again, our preference is to just go, uh, if we can, pretty cleanly to priced rounds. We've talked about timing. We've talked about size of checks. We've talked about financial mechanisms and tools. The geography aspect of angel groups, right? So we, mm-hmm. yes, there's $500 million fund venture capital firms that invest transatlantic, transpacific, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. Um, but typically, angel groups are well known to even be neighborhood or geographic centric of a city or Mm -hmm. uh, but there are some and to your point that you mentioned very early on in this conversation that there are members of lsa that are actually nationwide so tell us about how angel groups are structured or the philosophy of why typically early stage money sticks close to home why angel groups are sometimes state or even city focused or regionally focused and are there ones that are truly nationally focused and are there even angel groups that do international and why yeah, I think it depends upon the group. I, I can just speak to our group. Um, our group will do, you know, U.S. investments. Uh, we don't, ha- and, and sometimes there's just a, it's sort of a charter of the group, you know, female CEO, female management team. We want to support our local community and uh, minority uh, um, teams and, and so on. And, and that's all great. It, it's whatever your objective is. It's up to you, you know, but for us, it's healthcare, U.S., um, or we impose a time of closing that the company, if it's if it's not in the U.S., and we'll typically see things from Canada, um, uh, sometimes Europe, but Israel a lot, and we'll tell them they have the headquarter in the U.S. at closing. We don't force them to do a prior thing. In other words, spend some money to set all this up, and then you know what the deal fell through, and now you you know we don't want them to spend money on things. Uh, until you know th- they have to at the very end and then impose a structure that you know they may have to live with and, and we've backed out which we we rarely back out but there are times we have 
So at any rate, um, that's the what we'll do. And we just don't, in general, understand the laws of the local uh, uh, countries in terms of liquidation and what that means and tax reporting, all that. We just decided, look, it's just a lot easier for our members just to do US only companies. And so that's how it works. And I wanted to go to a fundamental idea. Um, we've talked about how some angel groups and, and you're a late stage, early stage angel group, like you mentioned before, but could get involved in series A seed rounds. For those out there, what are the major differences between angel funding and venture capital funding? Once again, mm -hmm. very general from your perspective. Well, I think the primary thing is um, uh, it, it's gonna be a check size and a level of sophistication. So the VCs are professional investors and we are not, although we have a number of VCs um, and we have a lot of folks who have been through this drill many, many times and have raised uh, a lot of capital over the course of their careers and many projects. Uh, so we understand uh, a certain number of things, but in general, I just say it's it's a matter of the maturity of a project, the check size, and the sophistication of the investor. And of course, there'll be people who will say, oh, those VCs don't know anything, those angels don't know anything, and on end, that could be the people that you talk to in any given time, or you know, the project doesn't resonate with them, and then they, you know, they're not doing the work on it. Um, but they're motivated differently too, you know, and that's not to say both sides don't want to make a return on the investment. That's fundamentally where it is. And, and both types of investors, you know, have a real passion for uh, healthcare. Um, uh, but, you know, they just, our risk profiles are different. You know, uh, naturally we come in earlier, so we're taking on more risk. Um, you know, so uh, it would tend to be more companies that we have uh, can fail than at a venture level. But I mean, obviously we all know that, you know, this, this business we're in, uh, you know, most of these projects will fail. Um, but anyway, th those are the general parameters, you know, risk profile, check size, so forth. You mentioned the word sophistication, but in numerous conversations that I've had as well, I've heard more and more that angel groups today versus years ago, decades ago, angel groups today are very sophisticated. What do they mean by that? Well, just in terms of process and uh, the, their knowledge, um, you know, the VCs will, will, you know, look, they're getting paid and, and they have folks on staff who are getting paid to really drill in. When we look at a project and due diligence, it's all volunteer again. So we have to get, make sure we have the right resources looking at things. And we try to drill as deeply as we can to get answers. Um, but, you know, naturally given, uh, you know, the VCs, they, they, will, they will just be able to put more resources to bear uh, on things to, to really understand a project in, in more detail. And they will invariably ask for board seats and really stay close to the project, um, you know, over time and really work hard for the project. We, um, that's not to say we may, you know, we may not, uh, or we, you know, we, we would hopefully do the same, but again, we're not getting compensated for these things. We're just hoping to move the thing along to the point where we can get liquidity. So there, there's different, uh, you know, they're, they're, the motivations are the same, but the resources are different. And then whether it's angel groups or even early stage VC versus later stage VC, but on the continuum of an early stage med tech company, and then let's just say one going IPO or getting acquired right now, 
is it fair to say that when you guys, meaning angel groups, are assessing companies, you're really assessing the management team and the market opportunity because you know that the technology likely will change, but there's much more of a human element of who's leading it, who are the people that you're investing in today, because the company is so nascent that by the time it continues to go down the pike or gain traction or hit milestones, the, the technology that might be acquired or might go public was quite different than the one that you initially invested in. So is it fair to say that you focus more on the people? Well, no, actually, I don't know if I'd agree with your, your um, assessment there because um, usually the technology, and we'll drill into every aspect. So we'll drill into the technology quite a bit. If a company we're finding, you know, that we've invested in, and then we hear later they've pivoted to a different technology, that's usually a very, very bad sign. Um, because depending upon what <clears throat> business school reviews or analyses, you know, have been done, very few companies I find uh, and, and have come to understand that pivot succeed. Now, the classics are sort of things that where there's a very slow pivot over time. Like you think of the Japanese conglomerates that started as, you know, making, you know, radios for your, you know, your, your parents' living rooms, and then they evolved and evolved and evolved. And they went over time slowly with different market forces, right? They were able to survive. Many of them didn't. Um, but those are the ones I think of classically. So someone who says, you know, we tried something in the market and we're pivoting to this. And you think, boy, all that money I put in, it, it didn't, it, 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 you're going to tell me it just went for you getting the experience of that. You know, it didn't really go to moving the company forward. You know, now you're sort of restarting. So at that point, you think, shut it down and go do something else. Um, so I, I think restarts are really challenging. Uh, so anyway, we, we, we dig in, in, in all areas. We divide it all up like anybody would looking at, at a project. Uh, we drill down to the IP quite a bit, technology and so on and so forth. Um, anyway, uh, back to your original question. Yeah, if you could restate that. Yeah, so I was, I was asking, um, do, you do you believe or, or attribute angel groups investing and focusing more on the people or the oh. technology? Well, I think everyone will um, invest in the people, you know, and um, now that, that said, <clears throat> um, uh, th there's often many times where depending upon the arc of a project, how far it has to go, uh, you know, if it gets past clinicals into commercialization, you know, that person who is good at zero to clearance, uh, regulatory clearance may not be the same person who's going to take it from regulatory clearance to, to 25 million. And it's not the same person that takes it from 25 million to 100 million and 100 million to a billion. You know, there's a different types of people, different mindsets, different sets of problems and scaling and so on. So uh, at least early, you know, we're, we're hoping that the thing can can achieve, the, you know, the, those initial milestones of clearance or, you know, hopefully getting to the point of, of liquidation if they have to commercialize um, that, that's so far down the road from us, you know, that could be a different, a different team. And, and that's, that's hard for companies too to go through that transition. That person coming in who is now charged with commercializing is motivated very differently than the technologist, you know, and that technologist who suffered, right, who didn't make really a decent salary for a long time and got the thing you know, proven into the market and is now put in a CTO or VP of development or marginalized in some ways. A lot of times people feel that they're marginalized, even though they say, no, it's right. It makes sense. They're now in a lesser role. So 
those transitions are really, really hard for, for companies, you know, to successfully get through. And obviously a lot get through there. Um, but the days of sort of like the engineer who conceives of it and becomes the CEO is the CEO forever uh, is hard. You know, Elon Musk, I think, was what the fourth or fifth CEO of Tesla. So those are hard things for companies to go through. You mentioned earlier on that LSA does not invest in, quote unquote, I have an idea style companies yeah. and technologies. Mm -hmm. For those listening that clearly are likely early for an LSA or even a more sophisticated angel group like LSA, um, what, what's your recommendation? I mean, when you have a napkin idea and you are an engineer or a physician still with a full-time job and there's not 250,000 sitting in your bank or yeah. what do you recommend? Like how, do those, how do those early stage companies get funded? Well, uh, just as an example, the way I did some is I, I went to family and friends and networked with friends who had means and a level of some sophistication and were willing to take a risk on me. Uh, you know, they just knew me. And so it was brick at a time, you know, 25K here, 50K there, and you build it up and enough to the point of, of building something, you know, and still angel investing, but not angel group investing. My last question for you, turning the tables for those audiences who have been listening to this and might have been inspired to want to become an angel. Once you are an angel, what can you expect? I mean, what is that feeling of being on the other side of the table, being the angel, not no longer the entrepreneur, but what kind of money could you expect? How, what would your, be, what would your advice be about becoming an angel? Do you, do you put money in there that you could put in the stock market? Is it something that you do for fun? Is it um, a really serious game and a part-time job? Can you expect to make a billion dollars? I mean, what, what's the whole <laughs> feeling of being an angel? What's the purpose? Yeah, I think it's it's portfolio diversification. You know, there's a, there's a certain percentage of your, you know, your holdings that you can dedicate to this and you should fully expect that it's going to zero out, you know, and so you should treat it that way. It's different than investing in the public markets. Although, depending, you know, the public markets have been quite good lately. So if you think you can beat the markets with, with a couple of the right investments in, in this, then, then good, it's about diversifying. But I think you're also getting really involved. You know, you want, you want to get closer, you know, to projects instead of just, you know, picking, uh, picking a public company, investing, you can't get close to them. So that's why I think a lot of people do it. And they do it for the camaraderie of their colleagues and to learn and to also network and, and all that. But um, you also have to be very given in your time. You have to know that you got to give a certain portion of your time. And you can't listen to deals and, and entrepreneurs. And sometimes, you know, they're just bad pitches. You just can't go shellac them. It's hard to get up there and, you know, and to pitch and they need to learn. So you always have to be positive and supportive. And you can say no, but no is no for now. You fix certain things, come back. But you just can't dump on people because uh, it's hard. It's really business is hard. Doing these things is are, is really hard. And then final comments on that. I mean, just for those listening again, is it typically is your objective to find a bunch of different companies and put ten thousand or twenty thousand dollar checks, or is it a few every five years or a few a year where you're putting fifty thousand dollar checks? And then are you waiting three, four, five, ten years because yeah. it's a med tech company? And what are you expecting back? Four times return? Well, LSA is, you know, your commitment is 25K a year. That's it. So, you know, I tend to do two to five a year and, um, you know, and, and spread it around and uh, hope that I can have some wins. And uh, you know, I've been a member for six, seven years now. I have to say all of them are still in the oven. They're all still going. <laughs> nice. I would have hoped some would have li liquidated by now, but they haven't. 
Some are getting close. Uh, we have had some wins on other projects that have come in that unfortunately I haven't invested in, but yeah. So absolutely, absolutely. yeah, that so was fun. I, I really appreciate you on this one. This is Howard Edelman, former chairman and representative of LSA, Life Science Angels, at least on this call right now. This is MedTech Money, demystifying raising capital. Thank you so much for your time, Howard. I really appreciate it. Thanks, it was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at projectmedtech.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day.